Awesome. <clears throat> Thanks for leading us, guys. It's fun to see you guys upstairs at the church there. Uh, looking forward to hopefully someday soon being able to join you and um, all of us be able to come together. So um, my name is Norton. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver, in case you happen to be joining us online uh, for the first time or you're sort of new to our church. Um, and we are in this series. Uh, it's been called Common Practices, uh, Common Practices. And it's based on a book that we think is outstanding that we're reading together called The Common Rule by Justin Whitmell Early. Um, if you've purchased the book and you're reading along with us, awesome. If you haven't bought the book, go ahead and buy it now. Even if you can't read it soon, even if you can't get to it until later this summer, um, it's a really good book because in this book, uh, Justin explores eight habits or practices that are crucial to helping us live our lives the way that we want to all live our lives. These habits or practices, they're like the trellis um, upon which our life grows. And he calls them habits of purpose. Uh, if you didn't hear the first message in the series several weeks ago, you can go back and listen to it. Um, we talked about why uh, habits are so important in our lives. Um, and then we started marching through these eight habits he recommends. We did one and two the last couple of weeks. And today we are on daily habit number three. And I'm going to be honest, I think number three might be a little bit harder than numbers one and two, for most of us at least, because I'm going to challenge you. Uh, and Justin's going to challenge you, and Jesus is going to challenge you, and a few others uh, are going to challenge you to do something today. And it's not doing something, it's to stop doing something that you probably do all the time. And it's a bit like telling someone to stop biting their fingernails who's been biting their fingernails their entire lives, and now they do it all the time, and they don't even realize when they're doing it. Now, I'm going to tell you what this new habit is in just a little bit, but I'm going to hold you in suspense for a few minutes because first I want to talk about two key ideas or two key concepts. Um, the first idea is the idea of presence. Uh, presence simply means being with someone in a specific place. And so the anonym or the opposite of presence is absence. So for those of you watching who are in middle school or high school or you're in college or you're in some sort of school, the teacher, when they take attendance at the beginning of class, they call out their, everyone's name and they want to know, are you present or are you absent? Are you here with us in this room or are you not here? So you didn't even respond when I called your name. That means you're not with us. You are somewhere else. You're absent, right? So present is about place, being somewhere. And that's important, but it's also about relationship. It's about being with people. So in, in the Bible, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes a whole bunch of letters to friends of his. They're collected in the New Testament, some of them. And in some of these letters, he says, I can't wait to be with you again. I, I can't wait to, to visit you again. I can't wait to see you again. I can't wait to physically be present with you again. Because Paul could communicate over the miles um, to his friends by writing them letters, but it wasn't the same as actually being with them in their presence, face to face. In fact, this idea of presence being about being together face to face actually comes from the Old Testament, where the Hebrew word that we translate presence is literally the word for being before someone's face. 
So let me give you a few examples. In the book of Esther, it says, when Mordecai left the king's presence, and literally in Hebrew, it says, when he left from before the face of the king. And then in the book of Exodus, God speaks to the people of Israel there in the wilderness. And he says, uh, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But it literally says, uh, my before my face-ness <laughs> will go with you. And then David, in the book of Psalms, prays one time. He's praying to God and he says, he's talking to God. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence or from before your face. And so David realizes, even when I'm alone somewhere, I'm not really alone. God is with me. I am in his presence. There's nowhere I can go where I am not still before his face. So presence is simply being with someone face to face in a specific place. And just a side note here, this is why Zoom... (laughs) As great as it is and as necessary as it is during these unique circumstances, this is where Zoom and FaceTime and Skype and all those things, they still fall short, right? Because we're not actually physically present. There's just so much more human interaction and relationship that happens when we're physically together. It's why we're getting tired of being on Zoom. It's why it wears us out because presence is ultimately about being with someone in a specific place. Now, there is a second concept that's related to presence. In fact, these two things, they go hand in hand. If you don't have this thing, then you don't have presence. And the best way to see it is in a little story from the book of Luke. It's a story that you might actually be familiar with. Here's what Luke tells us. He says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now, we know from other stories uh, in the Bible that Martha is friends with Jesus, that Martha lived just outside of Jerusalem. So oftentimes when Jesus came to Jerusalem with his disciples for feasts and festivals, he would stay with Martha and her family. And so on this occasion, Luke tells us that Martha opens her home up to him, which meant that Jesus and his disciples probably stayed there that night. Maybe they stayed for several nights. At the very least, it meant they stopped there during the day, and they probably shared a meal together. And this is what presence is all about, right? It's welcoming friends into your home to share a meal and be together, being with someone in a specific place. And then Luke says this, she, that's Martha, had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So Mary is hanging out with Jesus. She's sitting with him. She's talking with him. It sounds like she's doing a lot more listening, mostly listening to him. And Martha is over there in another part of the room, maybe even another part of the house. And she's making dinner and she's setting the table and she's getting everything ready, right? All good things. And so she's present with Jesus right? She's invited Jesus to be into her home with her, and she's still there in the home, but she's not really present. She's been distracted. And the Greek verb that's used here literally means to be dragged away, 
or, or to be pulled away. You're, you're with someone, but you're not really with someone because there's something else that is pulling or dragging you away. And in this case, for Martha, it was cooking and cleaning and preparing and serving. And if you know the story, you might remember what happens next. Martha came to Jesus and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, right? And we know Jesus is just shaking his head right now when he says this. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So Martha gets mad, right? Because Mary's not doing anything to help. But Jesus, instead of chiding Mary, he ends up chiding Martha because Martha was the one that invited Jesus into her home to be with him, to spend time with him, and then she left. Now, she didn't physically leave, but she wasn't with Jesus anymore. She was no longer present. And what this story shows us is that presence requires attention. Mary was present with Jesus because she was giving her attention to Jesus. Martha, on the other hand, was giving her attention elsewhere. Martha was focused on tasks. She was being pulled away by all of her worries, by all of the stuff that needed to get done. And because Martha's attention was elsewhere, she wasn't really present. And this is such a crucial insight for you and for me, because that means if we want to be present with other people, if we want to be present with friends, if we want to be present with family, if we want to be present with, with coworkers, if we want to experience even God's presence, it requires our attention. And the reason that this is so important for us today is because there's something it's different about our culture. There's something new in our world that's unlike anything ever before, and it's now stealing our attention away from the people and the places where we actually are. And you already know what it is, right? It's our smartphones. <laughs> now, <clears throat> don't worry. I'm not going to tell you to throw away your smartphone today. Uh, I have one. It's right here and beside me, and I love it. And I use it every single day. I use it all the time. Um, but I do want to take a few minutes to show you how our phones and other devices and apps are not just competitors for our attention. That would be understating it. Instead, we live in an entirely new world, an entirely new economy. And in this economy... We're almost all of us are Marthas, and we don't even realize it. So uh, economists and technology thinkers have explained that we now live in what's called an attention economy. Here's what that means. So many products and so much information is available now that the most scarce and valuable commodity is our attention. That's the most important and scarce and valuable commodity in our culture and in our economy right now. It's your 
attention. And so product makers and information creators are doing everything they can to get your attention. And that's even created a whole new layer of our economy. Media companies, news, entertainment, social media companies that now broker in the acquisition and sale of your attention. Every view, every click, every download is an opportunity for them to make money off of your attention. And at some level, right, we all know this. We know news programs and websites that we go to, they make their money off of advertising, right? We know that the games and the apps that we download are full of these ads now, right? We know that social media and browsers are somehow making a whole lot of money, even though their products are entirely free, right? So we know this, and yet we rarely pause to realize that what they're really doing is they're buying and selling your attention. Here's what one technology expert says. There are literally billions of dollars being spent to figure out how to get you to look at one thing over another, to buy one thing over another, to care about one thing over another. In the attention economy, winning for companies means getting as many people as possible to spend as much time and attention as possible with their product or service, which means not giving our time and attention to the places where we actually are and toward the people that we're actually with. Now, I'm not suggesting that all media companies are evil, right? Or that all the people that work for Facebook or Google are evil or that capitalism is somehow evil. But we have to acknowledge the reality that our economy makes billions of dollars off of Martha's and it makes nothing off of Mary's. So which one do you think it's dragging and pulling you to be? Now, I've been studying this for for quite a while, and I read a book a number of months ago. Um, It's called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, because I've been hearing about this attention economy and wondering, what do we do about it? And it's a fascinating book. This book has become a bestseller. And uh, when I started reading it, I wondered what the author, her name is Ginny O'Dell, I I wondered what she was like. You know, is she this cranky old woman who just is going to rant and rave about how terrible, you know, technology is, and that's not her at all. Odell is a millennial, and she's in her early 30s. She grew up in Cupertino, California, the headquarters of Apple, and she's a brilliant artist. In fact, she uses technology in her work and in her art every single day. She designed this massive mural in partnership with Google on the side of this Google data center. I wanna show you just a quick video about it just so you get a sense of what she does. I'm Jenny O'Dell, I'm an artist and I'm here in Pryor, Oklahoma because I'm working on a mural that will be going on this wall of this data center. The wall is massive, (laughs) which is awesome. So I'm cutting things out from Google Maps imagery and compositing it in Photoshop. And then from there, it's going to be hand-painted onto the wall. My team is in charge of publishing 3D imagery all over the world. We do something called mowing the sky with airplanes. These airplanes take 
images every few seconds over and over and over. That will then create 3D geometry and then they go and upload it to the data center. Watching Jenny do her work, it's kind of fascinating because she takes one piece of infrastructure and she breaks it down into these tiny, tiny little parts. I guess in essence you can say like, I put things together and she, she takes them apart. The circles in the mural are each collections of a different type of man-made structure. So there's swimming pools, circular farms, parts of wastewater treatment plants, and salt ponds. Seeing them from a satellite perspective kind of brings out how strange and specifically human they are. A data center is a place that a lot of information is going through, so the satellite imagery that I used to make this mural at some point passed through a data center like this one. I hope in looking at my mural that the people who work at the data center in Fryer will have an opportunity to think about the types of things that are enabled by the system that they're working really hard to maintain. Thinking about data centers really brings that home for people to have an appreciation for like these really crazy structures that you are in some way interacting with every single day. So she uses technology every single day. And as a result, she has thought deeply about its impact on our lives and especially its implication for our attention. And so she offers some really important ideas that I think we need to consider. Now, some of her ideas are a bit out there. Some of them I didn't find compelling. Um, she's not a Christian. In fact, her, some of her values are different than mine. So I'm not suggesting you have to go buy this book and read it immediately. But I want to share a few insights that she has that I think are really helpful. Here's what she says about this idea of attention. If we think about what it means to concentrate or pay attention, at an individual level, it implies alignment. Different parts of the mind and even the body acting in concert and oriented toward the same thing. To pay attention to one thing is to resist paying attention to other things. We contrast this with distraction in which the mind is disassembled, pointing in many different directions at once and preventing meaningful action. So this is just a description of Mary and Martha, right? Mary is paying attention to Jesus. Her focus is on Jesus. She's present in that place with him. But Martha is distracted. Her body might be there physically, but her mind is not. Her heart is not. She's fragmented. She is disassembled. She's thinking about other things, which is why Jesus says, hey, you're worried about other things. You're in a different place. You're distracted. You have been pulled and dragged away. You are not present anymore. Now, Jenny O'Dell says there's two aspects of this current attention economy that we live in that are probably the most subtle and the most powerful. And that's social media and the news cycle. So social media apps like Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, they primarily are focused on engagement. That means how much and how often someone engages with the app. Because the higher the engagement, the greater their profits, right? So Odell says this, if you're measuring how much and how often someone uses something, it's better if they're on a short attention loop where they're constantly checking back in where they're invested in this idea that something might have just happened five minutes ago, so they need to check it again. That's 
a phenomenon that has led to attention fragmentation. And she says, I exist in a space with a heightened anxiety and sensitivity all the time, even when I'm not literally engaging with any of these apps. That's because even when I'm not on my phone, it's there and I'm thinking about it. And I'm not really fully present here because I'm wondering what's happening over here. She says there's also the anxiety of the news cycle that we usually see either on TV or through apps or on our phones or on the internet. She says this, one of the most troubling ways social media has been used in recent years is to foment waves of hysteria and fear, both by news media and by users themselves. Whipped into a permanent state of frenzy, people create and subject themselves to news cycles, complaining of anxiety at the same time that they check back ever more diligently. Media companies trying to keep up with each other create a kind of arms race of urgency that abuses our attention. There's always a new crisis. There's always a new fear to be worried about and to be double checking on. There's always a new political battle to find out who said what and why we should think this, right? There's always a new issue that we need to be upset about, but it's just abusing and stealing our attention. Now, Odell is quick to say the villain here is not necessarily the internet or even the idea of social media, right? Connecting with other people is great. It's the invasive logic of commercial social media and its financial incentive to keep us in a profitable state of anxiety, envy, and distraction. Simply put, the more that I'm focused here, the less I'm going to give my attention to everything that's happening here, which doesn't matter to the companies. In fact, that's what they want. That's how they make money. Facebook made $70 billion last year. Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, is projected to make $70 billion this year. While you're focused here and not where you actually are. Uh, James Williams, I quoted him um, a few minutes ago. He's a uh, technology ethicist. He used to work at Google. He describes himself as a reluctant Twitterer and burrito enthusiast. So he must be a good guy, right? Anyone who's a burrito enthusiast must be a good guy. Um, here's what he writes. We experience the externalities of the attention economy in little drips. And so we tend to describe them with words of mild bemusement, like annoying or distracting, right? All these notifications are so annoying and distracting. But this is a grave misreading of their nature. In the short term, distractions can keep us from doing the things we want to do. In the longer term, however, they can accumulate and keep us from living the lives we want to live. You see, I don't think Jesus was upset with Martha that one day because he wasn't getting the attention he deserved, right? I think he was pushing and challenging Martha because he knew 
she had become the kind of person that was so easily distracted by all these other things that as a result, she was rarely present with other people around her. And isn't that what we all want? Don't we want to be present with friends and with family at the dinner table, right? Don't don't we want to give our full attention to deep and meaningful conversations with others? Don't we want to give our full attention to just goofing off with friends or with kids? Don't we want to be more present at work? Don't we all want to experience more of God's presence in our lives? Be able to hear his voice, know the peace and the love that he can give? We all want that, but it has become infinitely harder in an attention economy when literally billions of dollars are being spent to make you a Martha, not a Mary. So what do we do? Well, here's what Justin Early suggests. He suggests a third daily habit of one hour with your phone off. That every single day you set aside some time, an hour, maybe not just an hour, it's an hour here and there possibly, where you can focus where you can be fully present in the place where you are with the people that you're actually with. And you do it by simply turning off your phone or any other device that distracts you. Now I'm going to give you a few um, suggestions, practical suggestions for how to do that in just a second. But let me just point out the answer for resisting the attention economy here for most of us, is, is, is not to just throw your phone away. It's not to throw away your computer. It's not to close every single social media account that you've ever had. It's not to reject all technology and move to some off-the-grid farm in the wilderness of Canada, right? I mean, that, that does sound kind of fun, but that's not the answer for almost all of us because that's not realistic. And more importantly, I don't know that that's what God is calling us to do. If you're a follower of Jesus, I think what God wants us to do is recognize those things in our culture or in our lives that could be harmful to us, and then to do something intentionally about them, to make some intentional choices. And those choices rarely include running away from the world. They almost always mean offering a new way of living within the world. And so as I was reading Jenny O'Dell's book, I was kind of interested to see what conclusions she would draw at the end. And I was fascinated because she drew some of the same conclusions. Now she's sympathetic to religion, but she's not a follower of Jesus. But here's what she says. She says that once we recognize the power, the attention economy holds over our lives, we have to figure out ways to challenge it and to stand apart from it. And look at what she says. She says to stand apart is to take the view of the outsider without leaving. Always oriented toward what it is you would have left. It means not fleeing your enemy, but knowing your enemy, which turns out not to be the world, but the channels through which you encounter it day by day. It also means giving yourself the critical break that media cycles and narratives will not. Allowing yourself to believe in another world while living 
and this one. And she actually goes on to describe this other world. For her, it's a different world. It's a place where anxiety and fear and envy and distraction don't rule over our lives. It's the place where beauty rules and equity rules and justice rules and presence and genuine and authentic relationship rules. It's a place I would simply call the kingdom of God. And she says, we long for that kind of world and we hope for that kind of world to be fully realized, but we live in this world. And while we do, we have to figure out how to take intentional breaks from those things that are driving the fear, that are driving the anxiety, that are driving the FOMO and the fragmentation of relationships and the distractions and the lack of presence. And we do that in the most ordinary of ways. We simply figure out how to turn this device off for a while, every day. And so here are a few ways that Justin Early recommends You have an hour with a phone off. He says, first, consider turning off your phone when you're with family and friends. To pick an hour every day. Maybe it's at lunch with coworkers. If you regularly go out to lunch with coworkers, whenever we get back to going to work and going out to lunch and all those kind of things, right? Maybe it's at dinner time with the family, if you have a family. Maybe it's from 6 to 7 p.m. every single day evening, you and anyone else you live with in your home or your apartment, everyone just turns off their devices. And Justin recommends literally turning your device off, not just turning it over and putting it on the table, but actually turning it off, or at the very least, putting it in an entirely different room, putting it somewhere where it's not within reach, where it's not even within sight, where you can't hear it buzzing if someone is trying to email or text you, right? Because studies have shown that even when the phone is within reach or within sight, we're still anxious about it. We're, we're still thinking about it. As Jenny O'Dell says, there's this heightened sensitivity and anxiety about it. The reality is when our devices are present, we rarely are. So start making it a habit to find an hour a day when you're with people. And I think mealtimes are the best place to start especially in light of what Stephen talked about last week and how important meals are, right? Find a time where you can take an hour when you're with friends or with family and simply turn your phone off or put it away. Here's another suggestion he gives, turn your phone off at work. Not your whole day, obviously. Most of us, that's not even an option, right? But it's no secret that we're less productive at work When we have email open and social media open and Facebook or Instagram and our phones are buzzing and we're texting back and forth with people, right? So maybe you just create some spaces, some some times, an hour during your morning or your afternoon where you just, you close all the extra tabs and all the extra windows and all the extra apps and you put your phone away and maybe you still have to work on a laptop, but you put everything else away and you'd be shocked by how much more present you are when you're doing that work, or maybe present in the meeting? What if every meeting you had with coworkers, you just left your phone somewhere else? How much more present would you be? Here's a final suggestion. Turn your phone off to seek silence. Because we all need times of silence in our lives. Times where we can be present with our own thoughts, with our own emotions, 
and, and present just with God. Huh. Or we can listen to his voice. Look for what he has to speak into our lives. And if you're introverted, this is, this is a little bit easier, right? If you are an extroverted person, this is scary. This is difficult. So some of us, we've gotten into the habit of always having something else going in the background, right? Even when you're alone, the TV is going, or there's music going, or there's a podcast playing, because there's something comfortable for some of us about having that ambient noise, those voices, that input, that, that information. Maybe the headlines are always scrolling on the bottom of the screen. And then our devices and our phones contribute to that. Because whenever it buzzes, if it's there, whenever a notification pops up, that says you're important. <laughs> you're not alone. There's something for you to do, right? There's somebody to interact with. But all of that means we're never really alone. We're never really present with ourselves and with God. So we need to just find some times throughout every day where you can pause and be silent for a little while. And I think the beginning and the end of every day are especially important. What if you said, I'm not going to look at my phone for the first 30 minutes of every day and the last 30 minutes of every day. Now, some of us, that would be incredibly hard because that's the first thing that you look at in the morning. And it's the last thing that you're texting and doing stuff on before you go to bed at night. I started doing this about two years ago. And at first, it was really hard. At first, it was like, uh, I'll start with 15 minutes. The first 15 minutes, right? Or the last 15 minutes. It was hard. But you know what? It's not hard anymore. I go a good hour and a half every morning before I even look at my phone. And that's only because I made it a habit. That's only because I stuck with it, not just for a few days, not even for a few weeks, but it took several months to get to the place where I was comfortable in the morning and in the evening, every night, just having some time by myself, or at least not with this distraction. What if for you, it was in the middle of the day, right? Some of us do eat lunch by ourselves, whether you're at home or you're at work. And almost all the time, if you're by yourself, you're going to pull out your phone and look at it. So what if you set aside 30 minutes or an hour to turn your phone off and put it somewhere else? You won't have any idea what to do at first, but maybe you just take a few moments and pray, right? Midday prayer. We all usually struggle with that. Maybe you take a few moments and you pray, and then you just sit and you eat, and your mind is going to wander all over the place. And that's okay, because your mind and your heart, they need space and time to wonder. And maybe you just say to God, hey, God, I'm present. If you want to say anything to me, I'll be listening. And he might not say anything. Or maybe he'll just say, hey, that's really good because you need some quiet time in your life. So keep doing it. So those are just three suggestions. You don't have to do all of them right away. If you've never turned your phone off during the day, right, this is going to be hard for you. So maybe it's picking one of these and starting with them. But shoot for an entire hour. Because when you stop to think about it, that shouldn't be that hard. We're awake for 16 hours a day. Shouldn't we be able to find one hour, two hours, maybe a few hours every day without the presence of our phones? And what if we did that? What if we used these devices when we needed them and when they were really helpful 
And then during some very intentional times, we just put them away. How much more present would we be with others, with our work, with ourselves, and even with God? I hope you'll try this challenge this week. I hope you'll take it seriously. If you bought the book, I hope you'll read the chapter today or tomorrow because Justin gives some great background on this idea and even a few more practical suggestions. And I pray that it won't just be a one-week experiment, but that it'll be the beginning of a new habit for all of us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll wrap up by singing together. God, um, I pray that you would help all of us um, follow the model of Mary, Um, that we would give our attention to those who are with, that we give some attention to you, that we would give attention to our own health. Um, But that is so hard, God. And so I pray that this week you would give each one of us the courage to take a step, to take some very practical steps. To, to do something, to try something. And I pray that you would use us together as community to encourage one another, to help one another do those things. And God, I pray that you would show us the benefits and the results of giving more of our full attention to the people and to the places where we actually are. I pray all of this in your name. Amen.